Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Wolf Peggy. And today I am bringing you what I have promised is going to be a long series of mini-sodes as Marcel and I patiently wait for JK Rowling to write some more books for us. The topic of today's mini-sode is book design. Now I know what you're thinking. We spend a chunk of time on every canonical book episode talking about, you know, the material culture of the print book, but we have consistently done so in a deeply unprofessional way. And today I'm actually joined by a new colleague of mine at my new job in Vancouver, who is actually a professional book designer and teaches book design in the publishing program that I'm working in now. And she's going to talk to us about, you know, like how book design actually works and maybe give us a bit of a vocabulary for talking and thinking about the different editions of Harry Potter. Something maybe a bit more sophisticated than that one time when I was on public radio and said, fuck tables of contents. I got in trouble. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're not supposed to say fuck on public radio, as it turns out. Okay. Yeah. Can I say fuck now? You sure can. We have an explicit radio on iTunes. This is a filthy podcast. Good. Okay, so I have done something that will shock nobody. I have acquired three different copies of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which we have sitting in between us right now. 
I have, you know, my original copy, my uh, Raincoast books, the classic Harry looking quizzically at the Hogwarts Express and the mystery wizard on the back, which Marcel and I discussed so many years ago. Uh, And then I have acquired the new Bloomsbury paperback edition, partially so we can talk about the new covers, but also because this contains the paratext that Marcel is so, so angry about. And I have bought the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone illustrated edition, illustrated by Jim Kay, you know, because that exists. And and so let's talk about it. Let's start off with the original Raincoast. Can you start by, by talking a little bit about like as a book designer, when you look at a book cover, what you think about? When I look at a book cover, what I usually would look at first is probably the type and then be really critical about it and (laughs) think of all the ways that I would have made it better and be pretentious about it. And then I try to remember that there are many things to consider, not just uh, your personal likes and dislikes, but actually audience, the purpose of the book, what you're trying to communicate, what the book is about, imagery, color... Uh, but mostly audience. But definitely then I start looking at type and look at the kerning of the letters. So the kerning would be the space between specific letters. So between, let's say, the H and the A and the A and the R and the R and R and the R and the Y. And then just look at that for a while and then be like, oh, look at the spacing between the P and the O compared to like the two T's. Like, why was it current like this? The two T's are so much closer together compared to the P-O-T. Now that you're pointing it out, I am noticing that the way that Harry Potter is current looks really, really weird. Why would that be? Obviously, a professional book designer made this book. Yeah, but sometimes you kind of, well, maybe forget. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I find that kerning will be not not quite a personal decision, but how you visually interpret the spacing will vary from one person to another. It's finicky, finicky work. <laughs> so what else can you tell us about the cover of this this Raincoast edition? When you look at this, what do you think? I think that the illustration is not the best, but might be appropriate for, obviously, children. Yeah, I mean, it's a hardcover. Nothing very special about it. Uh, matte, dust jacket... There's no embossing, there's no spot gloss, there's no foil. And then the case itself is just a reprint. It's the same as the jacket, but more simple. There's no nice end papers, which is not uncommon for novels, obviously. Then I would just look at the type on the flaps. And what bothers me on the back flap is that there's an italic and then a bold italic. (gasps) Yeah. And then they didn't have hanging quotation marks, which I find is a little sloppy. Oh my god, I'm being so critical. This is okay. uh this is sad. Sorry, go ahead. So now talk to us about the inside of this book. Like what's the Raincoast edition like? I mean, it's hard to talk about because there's so little going on that it's almost like you're talking about the absence of something, which is important. Yeah. I think like one of um 
you may know Beatrice Ward. She is the one who wrote The Crystal Goblet and talks about typography like a crystal goblet, um, where the crystal wine glass is supposed to be completely invisible so that you enjoy the wine it's all about the wine it is not about the glass and so you want typography to be invisible and you don't notice anything about type because it can't be distracting you want it to be all about the words and the story and the narrative and so it shouldn't be about the design especially for novels so this you know the the thing i think that characterizes these raincoast books is that they feel almost undesigned, which is like obviously intentional. And part of that might be that I've just naturalized them because they are a version that I'm used to. But there is, you know, as Marcel has pointed out, there's very little paratext. So there's there are no illustrations. There's no map. There's no table of contents. Um, there isn't much going on at the beginning of the chapters to mark them off. There's no shift in typeface between different sections like there is the chapters begin with a different font and other than that there's not much going on i think it might even be the same font but just all caps um small caps and then for the chapter like chapter one chapter two and then the title is a larger typeface in italic but it looks like the same serif as the text so i think it's just like probably just one family the entire time it's pretty basic the thing that I find stands out the most here is just there's barely any margins. Mm-hmm. Ah, they're tiny and the letting is very tight. So th- what's letting? That's the space between bass lines. <laughs> and bass lines is where... The, um, <laughs> We're the, getting our technical vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> bass line is the line where the type sits. So when I say letting is from the bottom of the letter's from one line to the bottom of the letters of the other line. So is there anything you can tell about this book when you look at design aspects like this, about like how it was made or the considerations that they might have been making when they designed it this way? Because of the small margins, because of the tight letting, they were trying to get as many words per page, mostly. And so it would be mostly economical reasons. The paper is kind of cheap. So it's it feels almost a mass paperback, with but with a hardcover. Yeah. And yeah, so, it does feel pulpy, yeah. the paper. Yeah. And so I would I think it would be economical at that point. And it's a yeah. decent, like the X height of the type size. What's that? Literally, it's the height of an X. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> it's so complex. So a 10 point times versus a 10 point Helvetica versus 10 point Georgia, let's say, or Verdana or whatever. Um, the X height will be different based on each of the typefaces, even though it's the same technically type size. So they're all 10 point, but the X height will be different. Just the X or does the X indicate like the halfway mark for the lowercase letters? or Not the halfway mark, but it is the standard for all the lowercase letter that kind of like the N, your M, your A, your R, are all going to be the same like as the X. Okay. Um, anything that goes above the X height is called an ascender, and everything below it would be a descender. So like a uh, lowercase f is an ascender, and a lowercase g is a descender? Yes. I'm learning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you have a big X height plus a tight letting, it just seems like it's uh, tighter. So you could have the same letting here, but with a font that had a smaller X height, and it would seem more breathable. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little unfortunate that they picked a typeface that does have such a large X height. 
that being said, it's for kids, so it makes sense that it would use something a little larger because you want it to be legible yeah. and easy to read for kids. Yeah. So that's important. So we've got a combination here of thinking about audience. So like a cover design that is bright and exciting for children, a font that is, you know, trying to be as big and readable as possible, and then considerations of the cost of production. So like wanting to minimize how much paper you use, the quality of paper, um, not too much fancy stuff happening in how the the typesetting is executed inside the book. Any of the other like production quality, like the fact that there's no end papers, that's also like cost saving. There's no ink on there. The fact that it's just like the same design for the case rather than something different or something with foil or a different kind of paper. Those are all just like pretty standard. And I've got to say this doesn't surprise me that much because these are, I mean, it's not a first edition, but it is the first version of this book. And when this book was designed... J.K. Rowling was not a celebrity and Harry Potter was not an international phenomenon. It was it was just another kid's book. Yeah. Uh, which also you can tell by her name being small. <laughs> In some of the new editions, uh, her name is gigantic because she's much more important. And that's one of the selling factors. It doesn't matter which book you're buying. It's her book. Okay, so let's talk about these new Bloomsbury editions. So this is the ones that I have are not the copies that Marcel has been buying a few of. Those are the ones with the adult covers, um, which are the super, super brightly colored covers with the really sort of geometric, blocky type layout. But the insides are the same. Weird. Yeah. That's weird. Oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) So let's talk about this actual edition as a sort of a whole new set of design decisions for the same book. So first off, why entirely redesign a book that is iconic and has been selling in the same version for years? That must be because of the audience is changing. And so they're trying to get new, younger kids, kids of today. And they will have different aesthetics. I mean, how old are the original... 1997. That's a long time ago. It's almost 20 years. Did you just suddenly feel really old? Because I know I did. (laughs) Oh my god. Because I remember when I actually started reading them. It was not when they came out. It was because I was way too cool as a teen to read Harry Potter. Not me. (laughs) I was not cool, by the way. Oh, I see you were lying to me. Hmm. 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 So I was way too cool. Yeah. And I obviously started reading them when I was in university. <laughs> when I was even cooler. <laughs> Where was I going with this? Uh, today's youth. I mean, this makes sense. I, I had a student a couple of years ago in a book history class who did a project on um, Gordon Corman. Do you know him? He's a he's a Canadian YA author. And one thing that she did is do this presentation where she brought in like three or four different versions and asked her classmates what they thought. And the class unanimously preferred the most recent version because it spoke to their sensibilities because the old ones like it was published originally in the 80s and it looks really dated. Yeah. 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 So this does feel this is this is pretty trendy. 
Yeah, I would think so. I mean, um, especially the illustration. Even without thinking about it in terms of being dated or not, I think the illustration is better. But it also has tendencies towards, I think, graphic novel, which is becoming more and more popular. And and so it's not too surprising that that they would go in, in that route. Um, I also like the color palette. It's a bit more mysterious. So the title, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, is in (laughs) foil. I didn't touch it when I... I only bought it this afternoon. I hadn't touched it yet. Oh, so glossy. Yeah, so it's raised and you can feel it on both sides. And on top of that, there's foil. Don't think there's a spot gloss on top of it. I think it's just a foil, which is shiny enough. And then all the little stars are also foil. It um, goes well with kind of any mystery type novels that would be very common. What I find strange is the type face selection for Harry Potter. They moved away from both the original edition or the movie. I would have imagined that they would have gone with the movie because that one is so iconic. It is so... It's the Harry Potter font. Yeah, Yeah. it is. (laughs) And so I'm I'm kind of really shocked that they they didn't use it. And I, I wonder why. I don't know. Like, there is part of me that when I look at a cover that has the movie font, it feels a bit hackneyed. I don't want a Harry Potter movie tie-in edition. And maybe they're trying to still go from a different audience as well, right? We need new people. And so let's find a really kid-friendly font. This font is whimsical. Like little distressed edges. Um, like on you know the R. It's not like super clean, right? Tell me about the um, the matte. It's got this really weird matte finish to it. Yeah, that's like the new matte trend. It's the no scuff matte. Uh, so that even if it scratches, it won't actually show. A lot of the older matte book would get kind of destroyed more easily, especially with dark colors. So if you had a black cover, it would really show if it was scuffed. I remember going through piles of matte covered books trying to find the one that didn't have fingernail marks down it yet. Or oil. Oil shows a lot too. And so this is uh, a bit more resistant. I don't love the finish, but um, it is more durable, which is important for publishers because we know that the book publishing industry, you lend your book until they sell and they just return it to you. And so if they return all damage, you can't sell those books. So you really need them to be durable. That's a really good point. I think that this looks beautiful. Like, I think that the matte finish looks really nice. I hate the way it feels. Yeah. Do you really, like, hate it, hate it? Like, you would not want to hold it while reading it? Or would you? Only one way to find out. I feel irrationally strongly about things, though. (laughs) I used to quite hate it, maybe, like, a few years ago. No, not so much. I'm warmed up to it. I'm fine. I you're a you're a hating durable matte hipster. I hated this finish like two years ago, like before anybody else hated it. Told you I was super cool. Also interesting is the back cover. Can I take this sticker off? She's removing the chapters sticker. You know what the key is to getting those stickers off? Lighter fluid. Takes that right off. Wow. I wonder what else it can be used for. Lighter fluid? <laughs> Lighting things. I mean, for cleaning. Um, I bet lighter fluid would get uh, fingerprints off your walls. Only one way to find out. 
Let's just rub them. know about my walls. <laughs> I assume they have fingerprints on them. FYI, Mof has a child. That wasn't just me accusing her of being sticky-fingered. It's, it's both, really. Okay, now that it's somewhat removed, it gives me a better sense of, like, the spacing. It's not as uh, offensive now. <laughs> yeah, I find it interesting that uh, the type is the fake gold. So probably a Pantone, um, a pe- like a, well, no, like a, inspired by a Pantone. I don't think it would be a fifth color on here. What is a Pantone? Pantone is a color. It's a special ink, so it's their premix. So usually books are going to be printed in CMYK, which is cyan, magenta, yellow, CMYK, black. And every color can be made using those four inks. And so when you print in color, it's printing with four inks. It's with tons of little dots and it gives full color, full spectrum. Printed, obviously, spectrum, not digital. But when you need a very specific color, so let's say you uh, are branding something um, or you want a neon color, those will not be made through CMYK processes. You'll have a special fifth ink. So it's a fifth pass. So during the press, they'll run it through the press four times with the CMYK and then run it a fifth time. So it's a fifth plate. Uh, It's more expensive. So you'll have your metallic inks like that your neons and then any special like coca-cola red it's it needs to be that red it can't be any kind of red so they'll have a pantone specifically to them and so when i said pantone because it looks like a metallic ish color i would be mistaken because i don't think they actually would pay for having a fifth color just for the back cover on top of having foil which is another cost yeah so they probably would just be inspired by a Pantone swatch. So they would look at all the swatch books, pick a kind of golden color to match with the foil that they have in the front and all the little stars in the back. And then uh, just use a CMYK color that, oh yeah, it's totally foil in the back. It's super shiny. Yeah. yeah. So magical. <laughs> totally magical. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the inside. So much happening inside this book. Yeah. It's a busy book. Turn the cover and so that your inside cover has printing on it for color. So CMYK as well. And then what we see is that repetition of the little stars that were in foil on the cover are repeated on the inside front cover, on the reviews page, on the half title page on the title page as well as the like series information on the copyright page on the dedication page on the contents page it's just like a lot of stars yeah but it creates continuity and especially some of these pages tend to be kind of boring boring um, i actually love designing those pages because nobody pays attention to them so you can go pretty wild (laughs) without going like too wild but you can have a lot of like little design elements that make it a little bit more interesting and nobody cares so you can be creative you know i like that they thought about putting things there that's not just the standard so let's talk about the first big um content difference which is table of contents do you have feelings about tables of contents i like them (gasps) but i really like lists (laughs) 
I think they're very useful. Don't you? Not in a novel. No, I don't think a novel needs tables of contents. Like table of contents in a collection of essays or an academic work. Absolutely. Because I am going to be moving around in that way in that book. But that's not how I move through a novel. And so I don't know what that's for. Because I'm not going to read it. Like I'm not going to open a novel and be like, let me read the table of contents and discover what the chapter titles are. What if you weren't using a bookmark and you weren't dog-earing your pages? I am using a bookmark or dog-earing my pages. Your bookmark fell, but you remember the title of the chapter. And I will just flip through the book until I get through it again. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I absolutely see that point. It's interesting because I feel like a table of contents is something that sort of starts making sense after you have read the book once like you don't need it on your first read through but when you're re-encountering it you might say like I love this one scene I'm gonna go back and reread that and it reminds me of the fact that in a lot of early magazines the table of contents for the magazine came at the end I think actually some European books also still have a table of contents at the end as well as copyright information is at the end because it is considered not necessary and you want to enter the text immediately rather than go through kind yeah. of the, you know, front matter. Like, why bother? <clears throat> yeah, I kind of like that because yeah. it's like table of contents. That's like my index. Yeah, an index, a glossary, that kind of uh, more yeah. additional information. I could also see putting the map in the back. That would make sense. Yeah. Or even using it as end papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so map. I love maps too. I have some feelings about this map and my feelings are based entirely on my experience of reading the Harry Potter books as a child and the fact that as you read through the books, you slowly discover the world of Hogwarts. So you don't get to go to Hogsmeade until the third book. So you don't know where Hogsmeade is in relation to it. And so the world of Hogwarts opens up to you as it opens up for Harry specifically as our narrator. And there's something about having this map at the beginning that makes me feel like, well, no, but you're not allowed to know about Hogsmeade yet. You're only in first year. But I am torn because I love a map. This map is beautiful. And I particularly love fantasy novels having maps. Yeah, I I really do love maps. I think that it might be because I'm a visual person. I find that it always helps me situate things have a better understanding of like distance and difficulty especially if they're traveling somewhere things in relations to other things i think are important so i I do really like the map i think this map is awesome too the banners are all different and illustrated and those are lovely i like this beast in the water what you said though about Having too much information, I think, is very interesting. And maybe what they could have done is the same thing as the Game of Thrones, which um, they only have the map that's relevant to that story. And then as you progress and go to the other worlds, then you see more of the map. And even now, like on the internet, you have people speculating about the map because he hasn't done, he hasn't finished writing the book. So it's still like, there's a lot of like map, drawing speculations which i find so awesome about like where things are so maybe they could have done something like that and just been 
more conservative in what they were showing. I love that idea of having a different map for each one of the books that shows us a representation of the world as it exists in that book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it would expand with each book because his world expands. But that's not what they've done. It's the same map in every edition. You should design books. Yeah, I should. (laughs) It was so much cheaper to not do that, though. Having one map designed, so much easier. And like you said, this map is really stunning. Yeah. Does it feel... So I have pulled up on my laptop here the original map of Middle-earth from Lord of the Rings which I feel like is the secret intertext in every fantasy novel's map. <laughs> you are always speaking back to this map when you design a map really? at the beginning of a fantasy novel. Interesting. Yeah. I've never actually read those books. Oh, they're very boring. <gasps> Sorry, guys. I'm not. Uh, they're boring. Um, I read two and a half of them. The third one, I couldn't. But it's interesting to me to think about like how you were always playing off it. And so what are the sort of expectations of the way that this map is going to look? And then how have you subverted it? Don't you think it just looks like a historical map, though? And so its, it's influence is looking at actual yeah. historical maps? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It, but it's a particular period. Yeah. And then... Like, there are so many different ways that maps could look. So why does this map look so much like this one when it could look so different? I think we have a sort of genre of the fantasy novel map in our heads. It is absolutely based in historical maps, but I think that that comes from Lord of the Rings using that. Interesting. Yeah, because at the same time, you could have asked the same illustrator than the cover to do a rendition of the map, and that would have probably looked very different, more cartoony. That would kind of look cool, too, probably. Yeah. But that's like, this says... I'm a map. It also says to me, like, I'm a fantasy novel. I guess for me, I see it more as um, something historical. Mm. So it's supposed to be, like, it's old, there's history, there's, like, in terms of the yeah. wizard history. I mean, with the, the banners, especially. Mm-hmm. I was about to say incorrectly that there is nothing on here that dates it to the time of Harry's presence that it's a sort of timeless Hogwarts mm. map, but that is a lie because of Hagrid's hut. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about the typeface choices in this edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, they are using more than one typeface this time. Um, you have two, at least, uh, in terms of your typical text typefaces. Um, there is one that is distressed. That's both used for, let's say, chapter one, two, and three, blah, blah, blah. It's like a very slightly distressed. You know, compared to looking at the first one, which was so simple, mm-hmm. there seems to be more happening yeah. here. You briefly mentioned earlier all the different typefaces. So on page 55, they switch typefaces and it's just a, it looks like an older font. It actually, what it looks like, it looks like it, it's been photocopied, but it's not. It looks like it's a, 
an old book that would have been either photocopied and then reprinted or uh, they had the plates back in the day and then just printed from those old plates Mm -hmm. you have sometimes books like that where they'll just throw in a new cover but like the printers or the publisher doesn't have the digital files and they just use this like old technology and it just feels different the fonts are not actually distressed it's just because of the technology that the lines are not as sharp as they would be the document that's being produced on the page here is the letter that harry has received from hogwarts inviting him and it they have realistically created the feel of an older medium being reproduced here And then you have the signature, like a fake signature, so in a kind of a script font. And then also a handwritten note. Well, I mean, it is, it's a type, but it's a digitized handwritten (laughs) font. I think that this change of typefaces is completely appropriate for the audience. Mm -hmm. I think it breaks up the text and it makes it a little bit more inviting it's kind of replacing illustration. So for a text that does not have illustration, it's not an illustrated book. It acts as a bit of an illustration, but still provides content. So I tend to like them. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's jarring when when the version of the book that you have read is the first one. But one of the things that's interesting to me about encountering these kinds of choices is that it's then a reminder that that first book is not neutral. It's also a set of choices. Mm -hmm. Like the choices that they have made are to not do this kind of stuff. Uh, We had an an interaction once with one of our lovely listeners who said that the, I guess the original American editions had a lot of this, maybe not the same, but like a version of this kind of paratext in it from day one. And he suggested that the, um, the Rain Coast books were this sort of, Canadian puritanical aesthetic. I had just assumed that the Canadian Raincoast edition was the files from the original publisher. Which would have been British. Yeah. Yeah. Canadian is the same as the British. Okay. But I think the American were different. Interesting. Because it would be much cheaper to do that because yeah. you just get the InDesign files or I'm assuming it would have been InDesign at the 97? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. PageMaker? Quark. Quark! It probably was Quark. <laughs> Quark Express files sent by the publisher in the UK and then they would have just used that mm-hmm. and maybe changed like some spelling yeah. but probably not because it's British and we're Canadian so yeah. boom. Done. Yeah, like we didn't change them. I know they changed words in the original U.S. edition, you know, to get rid of British words that American readers wouldn't know. Yeah, Yeah. kids will have a harder time with different words. So, of course. Yeah, I will have to follow up with Adam about what those original American editions looked like. But yeah, I don't know. Like when Marcel first brought one of these to my attention, I was like, this is this is a bit much. But when I was looking through them at the bookstore today, I was I was pretty convinced like they're really fun. I think they are fun. There's not that many, so I don't find that they're too overwhelming. They're not, like, too distracting. It just adds a little fun thing here and there. And in terms of just, like, the general look of this book, it's so much better. The letting here is much more readable. There's more breathing room. The margins are nicer. 
the typeface selection is nicer. The X height is more appropriate with the letting. So it's just a little bit easier to read. There's more in some of the later books because some of the later books include like, for example, really large excerpts from books that Harry is reading. And those will all be set aside with a different type. But again, I didn't I didn't find them obnoxious because it's just like these three pages are just in a different type. And I guess it would depend also if it's um, like three pages of fake handwritten or cursive would be very different than three pages of a different serif that seems a little bolder. Like if it was every single page or every single spread had something and it was a crazy font, I'd be like, okay, like, <laughs> let's <laughs> give me a break now. Give me a break. It's supposed yeah. to be like, it's supposed to be legible. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, editions that do or do not calm down, let's finish by talking about the illustrated edition. So these are uh, these are the big hardcover Jim K illustrated editions that are being slowly released. Only Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is out so far. Chamber of Secrets is now forthcoming. And uh, we briefly consulted the Bloomsbury website and realized two things. One is that you can now buy... Chamber of Secrets or a Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets box set, which is amazing, assuming they will release a new box set with every new book that they bring out. And also that, so I have the illustrated edition, but there's also a deluxe illustrated edition. So they're they're really just amping that up. And I'm guessing we can't look inside the deluxe illustrated edition, but my guess is that they're the same inside. And that it's the cover design that's different. Based on the tiny thumbnail on the website, it did look like the case was different. So this hardcover has a jacket with an illustration. You open it up. The case is red. Oh, what would you say? What is it? It's not fabric or I mean, it's it's like it's paper, but it's um, imitating... It's like attempting to imitate like a, it's got a sort of faux fabric finish to the, to the paper. Laid, by the way. What does that mean? Um, It's that pattern. It's, uh, it's pressed like that. Oh, it's pressed to look like it has the weave of a fabric with horizontal and vertical lines. My guess is that the deluxe edition is fabric. Definitely had tons of foil on the the cover yeah. um, and maybe on the back and not just on the yeah. spine like your edition. Yeah. And it had a fancy looking box that also had embossing all over it. This one is still pretty fancy. It looks beautiful. I really like the illustrations. I especially like the end papers. Mm-hmm. The typesetting is nice. I mean, there's things here and there that I'm like oh they really could have fixed that (laughs) like this you have a widow (gasps) (gasps) okay we are currently looking just in case anybody has this at home looking at an unnumbered page uh page 13 we have the illustration at the top of Hagrid on his flying motorbike and Mauve has spotted a widow what's a widow (laughs) it's the last line of a paragraph that starts at the top of a new column so it creates this weird gap right at the beginning of the column it's like a typesetting faux pas it's a big no-no but sometimes they're just so hard sometimes to avoid ideally you would want the last line of your paragraph to be at least half of the paragraph width 
That is really hard when you have, especially like a one sentence paragraph. So then you can tweak the spacing between letters and words to try to make it fit, play with hyphenation, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And there's a lot of like, there's a lot of complexities to the design of this book, because for those of you who haven't looked at it, the, it's not, you know, a page of type and then a full page illustration beside it. There are some examples of that, but for the most part, it's illustrations incorporated onto the actual page with the type sort of sharing the space with the illustrations moving around the illustrations so from page to page the layout is constantly different and the relationship between image and text keeps changing and even on pages that are just text and don't include illustrations every page is a painting and it's you know like watercolor paintings that have uh, been done to look like like old paper with like some ink blots on some of them um, and it doesn't I mean I would have to look much more carefully but it doesn't even look like they've just taken one version of that and reproduced it page to page they look different I'm sure they have a certain own number of them and then they could use them like a different different orientation to just have some variety I can't even imagine the file size of this book <laughs> it must have been so like gigabytes and gigabytes it must be huge because every page has an image that's full size it's not just a little insert so that's that's more than some of the cookbooks that I've done it's just that's that's huge and the planning for this was probably quite extensive so they would have done a flat plan probably at the beginning of production even before designing before selecting typefaces before doing all of that they would have planned what illustration they wanted if it was going to be full bleed or not if it was going to be an insert if it was going to be uh, you know like half page that's a lot of planning it's a lot of work so this is the spread of pages four to five and it's a big beautiful picture of an owl looking you straight in the face and what's remarkable about it is that it is like a full page painting but there's still type all over it so talk about what the challenges of that would be legibility (laughs) (laughs) so I was wondering how that was I guess done or what was the thought process my suspicion is that the artists did the painting and then when they put the type on there it was a little bit hard to read and so then the designer probably would have put a gradient a white gradient so that um, it would be easier to read the black type but at the same time where the transparency would be leave the original painting quite saturated because right now when we look at it the head is quite detailed saturated while the body and especially the wings and the tail is quite um, washed off and so it looks like they could have done some manipulation to make sure that it's readable the thing that really struck me the first time i looked through this is just like these people have presented themselves with a new challenge on every page like you could have reproduced more of the same thing and still had it look beautiful but it feels like it keeps mixing up the relation between image and text in a way that makes it really exciting to look through it keeps doing unexpected things in some ways it's kind of using what a magazine designer would do. Magazines are much more complex than books and you know you have different features that will change every issue and you just deal with it and this is kind of like that where every spread is different just like a magazine print and it's just they present variety and this is kind of 
doing that. I mean, it doesn't look like a magazine by any means, but the... Oh, it does have columns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like magazines do. True. Yeah. And some books. Nope, no books have ever had columns. So. Right, yes. <laughs> right. I'm learning a lot about book design today. <laughs> so on page 25, there is a widow. It's like a widow paragraph as well. Yeah. It's a little sad, but in terms of word count, it would have fit if it wasn't for that big snake. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good sentence. I always say that. Yeah. I mean, that's just a really fun thing to be able to say about the layout of a page. Yeah, I tried to make all the type fit, but there's this damn snake in the way. <laughs> that snake really creates some problems. <laughs> also creates some like fun movement in the town oh shit yeah the snake is creating rivers <laughs> what's a river rivers are the white spaces so when you have justified text if the column is quite narrow it's gonna just create these huge gaps between words just because it's trying to keep the justification you know going so if you have too many of these huge gaps it's gonna create what do you call rivers because like a river could run through the text essentially and that's because the snake is really encroaching onto the column and so making the essentially the column quite narrow and the narrower the the column the harder it is to put words in that snake man (laughs) ruining everything for the book and the people how much yeah. of the splotchiness there is eh? Yeah. like there's the small splotches throughout and then there's like also as kind of background splotchiness for inset illustrations there's an intense watercolor aesthetic being used here though i think that the representation of ink is also in keeping with the wizarding world because they write in ink right yeah. like that's they write with quills and ink so that also gives us a sense of that that material old timiness yeah. of the wizarding world like they use scrolls and ink and quills inexplicably and a lot of this book is just like the way this book's been designed it's just like that feels old timey a bunch of ink splotches which is really crappy craftsmanship <laughs> that idea of like poor craftsmanship being conflated with old timiness reminds me of um, something I was told at a letterpress workshop that I went to where the uh, printer was talking about the aesthetic of old-timey printing, particularly like a feel that we associate with um, like circus notices, which is a lot of uh, spotting inside the type. And she was talking about how like those would be those would be like a really, really cheap sort of runoff rapidly when a circus arrived in town because they would just want to, you know, whip up a bunch of bulletins and circulate them without caring about the quality. But that now has this sort of nostalgic association of it, even though it's actually an indication of poor craftsmanship. Of course. Even um, right now, it's also very fashionable with letterpress to have the texture so that the letter pressed really hard into the paper so it creates an impression so it's you know embossed that would be absolutely not the way to do it it's not actually supposed to leave any marks it makes sense it is bad printing if in the process of printing one side of the page you ruin the other side of the page that is correct it just looks really cool for business cards Tell me about like the use value of a book like this, because what strikes me about this book is it is so big 
It is so heavy. The pages are so large. You are not going to carry this book with you. You are not going to take this anywhere. You are not going to read it on a plane or a train or a bus. You might struggle to read it in bed. Is this the version that somebody is using to actually read this book? I could see like a parent reading to a child because two people need to hold it. <laughs> I think this is a coffee table book, essentially. So it is a art piece. It's not a mass paperback. It's not a digital version. So I think in design, in publishing right now, we see a trend. People can get their books in so many different formats for very cheaply. How are we going to make them buy books <laughs> that are printed? You're going to have to make really special editions so that it's worth it. And then you spend more money on it. The readers are spending more money on it. It becomes art pieces so i think it's like the gift market coffee table book it's like it's a collector's i've worked a lot in cookbooks and um, i do think a lot about who buys cookbooks because even as a cookbook designer cookbook lover i get a lot of my recipes online when i'm just looking for a random thing to do or an idea i go online i don't really go through my cookbooks um but I love buying cookbooks. I love looking at cookbooks. I love looking at the photos. It's more for collection of them. If they're pretty, if the photography is nice um, and inspiring yeah. rather than practical. Yeah. And they are also um, your cookbook collection is another way in which you accrue books in order to make a statement about yourself as a person. Right. Especially because cookbooks align with different lifestyles in such particular ways so that you can you know a display of a particular kind of cookbook is a way of very clearly framing your own identity as well yeah. now i'm trying to think what my cookbooks say about me oh my god <laughs> but i bet they say something about you right like if you went into my kitchen right now and looked at my cookbooks you'd be able to figure out a couple of important things really quickly one they're all vegan cookbooks do a really good job of indicating to us that books do not just exist for reading because if books were just about content and the turn to the digital was just about taking that content and putting it in a different format, then cooking blogs would have replaced cookbooks years ago. Yeah. And they haven't. Yeah. So that indicates to us that books serve a different function than simply communicating content to us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially since... Um, the internet is actually a really good way to learn how to cook and do recipes like with the amount of photos that they have and videos it's amazing yeah. so it, it would be like it's completely ridiculous to just look at cookbooks to learn how to cook <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not a good way to do it no that's sad yeah. <laughs> and similarly this book is maybe not a great way to read harry potter and the philosopher's sure. stone but I don't at all regret the fact that I own it. I think it's absolutely stunning. There's a couple of things that I don't like about it. Yeah. Do you want to know what they are? Yes, very <laughs> much so. I'm a little disappointed that the chapter openers are half pages. Chapter openers are often the time to kind of do a big splash to be like, we're in a new section. Look at us. And here it's pretty much always a half page illustration with the chapter title incorporated into the center of it and then half a page of type at the bottom and i feel they could have done something a little bit more flamboyant and yeah. grandiose 
when I sat down with this book, like I bought it and I brought it home and I sat down with it and I was like, okay, what can I say about this? And I was like, well, it's very pretty. (laughs) It's like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't even know where to begin to talk about the kinds of very specific decisions that go into designing something like this. Any final thoughts on uh, Harry Potter book design? <laughs> you were just about to say something else nitpicky, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Just about the font. We didn't really talk about the cover. Oh, of yeah. Thing. The cover. The cover, which is blue foil. With also being uh, embossed, which is more appropriate, I think, to the new kids Bloomsbury edition, which had that with the gold foil. But I think that worked better with that kind of genre, like the mystery type novel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it was necessary here. I don't think like everything else was finely crafted, um, attention to detail. And this seems a little cheap. You see that kind of stuff most for like mass market books, not for yeah. huge editions. I mean, you you do see it, but maybe it's like the fact that it's both the embossing and the foil. It's just... Yeah a little too much yeah. for me. It's interesting to see the the um, lengths they've gone to to try to produce luxury editions, right? Yeah. Why don't we finish with you telling me how you feel about the kerning on this cover? We can come full circle. It's better than the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except they also have like weird letter spacing for the Philosopher's Stone. Lowercase do not need letter spacing. And it looks like the reason they have it is to make room for a drop shadow. And again, you don't really need the drop shadow because you're actually... What's the drop shadow? Um, it's that like, little black that's oh, next yeah. to the blue to create you, even more depth. you really don't need when you're also embossing and foiling. Exactly. <laughs> that is overkill. What I do like, though, is how much the owl stands out. Like makes perfect sense because Hedwig is the secret star of the Harry Potter series. Hedwig will live forever. All right. Amazing. Thank you. Shit, it's not Hedwig. Oh my god, cancel everything. Who's this fucking owl? Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 15.5, probably, of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are, as always, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. Speaking of iTunes, special shout out to Cyclone Chloe for leaving us a review. Be cool like Chloe and leave us one too. That was a poem. And speaking of cool things to do, don't forget to check out our merch at society6.com slash ohwitchplease or through the link on our website. Thanks, of course, to our special guest, Mauve Paget. If you would like to see some of Mauve's design work, you can go to pageanddesign.com and check out some of the books that she's worked on. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support, and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? And kisses to everyone whose name would have shown up on the Twitter list if I was doing one for this mini-sode. You know who you are. We'll be back next episode with another mini-sode of Marcel's devising. But until then, later witches!
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.